Hey there, everybody. How are you doing? So this is one of those weeks that we're going to have a repeat. However, one of the episodes that I spend the most time thinking about is actually one from a poet from, I think, the first season. So Paul Thomas Darjelek, he wrote a book called The Butterflies in God's Stomach. Now, I have the text that I wish so much he would publish. I've also listened to the audio version of that text. And again, Paul, if you're listening, publish the thing. Anyway, when I ask people often, what's one of your favorite episodes? This one's one for me. There have been a few people that have helped me reframe how I look at the Bible. And Paul's been one of them. So here we go. A repeat. Let's do it. We fundamentally, tragically, misinterpret what the Bible is when we treat it like a big scrap pile of dogma that we get our religious rules from. And what I believe with all my heart is that the Bible is the love story of God wooing humankind to be his bride in a world where we've lost the plot. It's an ancient Jewish motif, one that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to dedicate a portion of the rest of my life to sharing that message in the most powerful ways I'm able. In the pouring rain, I will be the same. When you're wandering, you and I will still remain. You'll run to hide deep in the night. Give up the fight, I am always on your side. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. I am happy that you are here, and I thank you for downloading this episode. Uh, Before we get started, please remember to like and review the show on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find all those links in the show notes. Today's interview is with author and poet Paul Thomas. I will let Paul kind of introduce himself in the interview, but here's kind of the theme of the show. Most of the time, we are taught to think of the Bible as sort of a guidebook or the rules or the driver's ed training to riding on the avenues in the interstate that is life. And we forget to look out the windows. We don't look left to right. We don't give enough thought to the themes, the culture, the genre, and the intent of the words. Not just the cultural historical context, but the emotion behind the words, the setting of biblical stories, and the reason that certain stories are told in a certain way. And so that's kind of what we discuss. We discuss just the Bible as an overarching plot and love story of the divine God loving and cherishing us in a way that we still are unable to comprehend. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's roll the tape. In the middle of the pouring rain, I will call your name. When your soul sways on and off and on again, you'll change your mind, but still be mine. We're intertwined. I am always by you. I am enough, always enough. Paul Thomas, thank you so much for joining the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, if, if I'm honest, uh, your name was not one that I was familiar with until a previous guest of the show, Alexander Shia, had said, hey, Seth, you need to, to look into Paul and see what he's doing. And, 
And the more I engaged in what you're doing at your website and your poetry and your words, and I, I, I liked it a lot. So I, I appreciate you making the time to come on today. Thank you so much, Seth. It's great to be here. And thank you to Alexander for <laughs> recommending me. For much of my adult life, I've kind of been hidden out at working as a missionary drilling water wells in Central America. And so my name's not floating around all that much these That's days. Cool. But Who do you do that with? Or is that just you and a shovel and a village? It, it started out as me going off to live in the poorest place I had ever seen, just really believing in a ministry of accompaniment and like the incarnation, that's our thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so just going to be among, I became a bean farmer in El Salvador and I ended up in the hospital a couple of times with kidney problems. So I was just this guy leading a Bible study under a mango tree in the poorest village I'd ever seen in my life. But we found ourselves hauling water from a, from a, trickle. There was a crack in a rock. You'd Mm -hmm. stick a leaf in the crack of the rock. And then that trickle would produce five gallons every 35 minutes that you put that on your shoulder and haul it back home. Well, anyway, ended up in the hospital, ended up learning how to drill wells from an organ, some, some people at an organization that was then emerging is, and is now a big one, Living Water International. Mm -hmm. You can check out at water.cc. So anyway, started an autonomous Salvadoran ministry, incorporated it into Living Water International later. I don't know if you've ever listened to the Relevant podcast. They make me laugh. Jesse Carey specifically makes me laugh. And one of the things that he did not long ago, and it wasn't with that water organization, uh, maybe a year ago, he basically put himself in a room and watched Nicolas Cage movies that were crowdsourced. So not the good ones, like not National Treasure, like uh-huh. the, the bad ones, not not uh-huh. Raising Arizona, but um, <laughs> the, the bad ones. And he he did it on repeat with no rest for 24 hours straight. Um, and they think he did the same thing the next year and he listened to only Nickelback on repeat in the shower while he slept. <laughs> it never shut off to raise money for, um, an organization called charity water, uh, yeah. which I think does similar type of work where they come in and they help people get a clean source of water. Yeah. So I think, ask, do you still do that? I still work as, um, a, a freelance writer and, and communications and fundraising consultant with various water organizations or nonprofits. That's cool. Yeah. Water is, is life giving. Like it is. If, and I said this uh, in a previous episode at the end of the NT Right episode as, as um, I was trying to raise a little bit of money for charity water. And, and I said, if you don't think that it's life giving, then you just don't drink any today. And we'll talk about it tomorrow morning. If you think water is not important. Just don't drink any today and, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. It's, it's the root of everything, you know, and it's, it's a health issue. It's an economic development issue. It's an education issue. I mean, it's behind so many problems. And by the way, something that the church could just solve. I mean, not that it's that easy, but, but the church is a billion people. Um, you know, one in nine people doesn't have safe drinking water. The, the other eight can give a hand, you know, the, it's really within our reach and, and I'm glad that it's, in the vision of people like Scott over at Charity Water and Living Water International. And it's so it's it's also just a lot of fun to get into and hear the stories behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a bit about you now then. So you now, you, I, I assume you're in, are you in the States? Are you in, where are you at? In the Canada? I am. Nope, San Antonio, Texas. Oh, I'm from Texas. Oh, where in Texas are you from? I'm from Midland, Texas, uh, which well, is neighbor. further west. I don't know if you know where Midland is or not. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I'm sure it's hot there today and I'm sure it's hot in San Antonio. So it's very hot. Yeah. 
so well then before I get started then I ask everyone from Texas the same question because I'm biased. So if if you have to choose right now, are you going to go to In-N-Out Burger or Whataburger? You didn't really have to ask that. It's Whataburger every time, every time. <laughs> so, so good. And, well, because I I just ban people if they say In-N-Out Burger, I ban them. So they're, <laughs> they're no longer allowed to 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 have. We just we just end the conversation. So what do you what do you do now, Paul? What what is kind of what you see your trajectory trending towards? And I know you're you're working on a book. You do poetry. Um, so you do a lot of things. And so what does that look like now? Yeah, I'm kind of a middle-aged guy. I spent the first half of my adult years helping bring water to people in Central America. And then after that, helping Living Water International do that in 23 countries around the world. And kind of the, the turn that I've taken, um, I've always been a literary guy. Um, I love literature. I love, that was my, what my college degree was in. And um, my role in life now is to help myself and others find ourselves in a love story and get engaged because I believe that that's what scripture is. Um, all that time leading the Bible study under a mango tree in El Salvador through all the Bible geeking out that people like me and you do has led me to that, that we fundamentally tragically misinterpret what the Bible is when we treat it like a big scrap pile of dogma that we get our religious rules from. And what I believe with all my heart is that the Bible is a, is the love story of God wooing humankind to be his bride in a world where we've lost the plot. It's an ancient Jewish motif, one that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to dedicate a portion of the rest of my life to sharing that message in the most powerful ways I'm able. So if I sit down and I pull out my Bible, uh, and as a Protestant, I've just got 66 books, and so we'll just talk about that one. Although recently I've been reading the Catholic Bible, and I've been falling in love with the book of Maccabees because it's something I've never read before and um, didn't know I was allowed to read those things. So it's it's well, I was. I guess a part of me always knew that I was, but I just, I, they're not at quote unquote Lifeway bookstore. So I didn't have that option. How should I, when I sit down, how should I approach the text? If, I, if I'm going to read it correctly and I'm going to try to find the themes and the reasoning behind the words that are written there, how should I approach it? In, in the same way that the message of Jesus is that God is incarnate. In Jesus, God longs to be expressed through flesh, through real stuff, right? In the same way, the, the Bible is so embodied. So the way to look at it is not to look at it like it's a scrap pile of dogma that we extract religious rules from, but this, the most important library or treasury of literature that our species has ever encountered or ever will encounter. And so you take each of those books for what they are. And it, and, and it's, and it makes it a lot more fun too. If you just pretend like the Bible is something where God momentarily took away the free will of an author and then wrote down what he really wanted us to read <laughs> and they gave the free will back. And it's like God himself saying, then you really diminish what the Bible is. Psalms are Psalms. That was a literary tradition in Egypt and in Babylon and among Hebrew people. Letters are letters. Laments are laments. 
read them for what they are. Find out what genre is this? You know, there's about a dozen different genres represented. What's going on at the time? What are those things that uh, would have just been contextual to people at the time that they didn't have to be explained? Think through what that stuff is like. And I tell you, it just gets more and more interesting. And, and just that never ends. Can you give me a few of those examples, like of the 12 genres and things that would be just commonplace? Like if, if you and I, and, and I know we've talked about this in the chat before. So like if I say that the door squeaks open and it's dark outside and there's a full moon and you hear a wolf howling and if all of that was written down behind the conversation that we have, we would be having a quote unquote spooky conversation or like a campfire type conversation. And I, I agree, we do miss that. So what are a couple of those things specifically genre-based, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, or maybe that flow between the two that we miss? This is partially genre and partially context. So much of the Bible is kind of like a rap battle. Like it's riffing off the ancient stories and myths of other cultures. And in that way, they're like slinging these just beautiful, you know, poetry in real life back at the culture around them. So an example, it is in the genre of a gospel, the gospel. It's an announcement of the good news of Jesus. It's part biography, and it's got that rap battle feel. When, pe when people in the Bible call Jesus the Son of God, Savior, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, as you probably know, those are all titles that were applied to Julius Caesar, then to Tiberius Caesar in Jesus' lifetime. And they were on the, you know, D.V. Filius, son of God, that's on the coins in everybody's pocket. That's a proclamation. That's people saying, this is the son of God. Caesar is not. And if you don't know that context, then it feels like what I grew up with was just thinking like these were brand new words in the history of the world. And it decontextualizes that. And so you can see that in all the ancient stories. Um, this isn't an, an Old Testament example would be, say, the creation story um, composed in Babylon. That is a story that kind of is the context is a story of the god Marduk defeating Tiamat and it's violent and, and everything. And, and then so what we get in Genesis is people riffing off of that and say, no, 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 no. Here is the character of God expressed in this story. Can you touch on that a bit? I, I don't know those two names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marduk is the main god of Babylon, the Babylonian people. So when a lot of, in the Bible itself, um, the belief, if you grew up like I did, then you grew up thinking Judaism is the most doggedly monotheistic religion in the history of the world. And we're Christians. So we got that monotheism theism, right? And that's what makes us different and better. And it's always been like that. And basically everybody in the Bible believes what I believe, but life got the full story, whereas they didn't in the old Testament that you read about in your Bible. I mean, I'm talking about in Chronicles and Kings and everywhere people they're what they call henotheists. They believe in lots of gods. They believe in regional war god deities, largely. You know, that, that, that's just a product of the Bronze Age. So the god of Babylon was Marduk. And it was believed that creation happened at the site 
of Marduk's temple. So picture the exile. These people were marched 900 miles to Babylon to be relocated. They looked up at Marduk's temple. They looked up at the ziggurat in the center of town and they saw something seven times the height of the temple of Jerusalem in its glory under Solomon. They were like, what? And they were like, yeah, this is the house of the god Marduk. And people contextually there, they believe Marduk ruled this place. Yahweh rules that place. That's why it's so mind-blowing when Ezekiel looks up in the sky and he sees, you'll notice, everybody that drives the Bible's story forward, they're never the people who are looking backwards at the Bible saying, you got to obey the Bible. No, no, no. They're people like Ezekiel who are looking up at the sky and saying, whoa, man, I see intersecting wheels and they're covered with eyes. God is perfectly mobile, perfectly all-seeing, even here in the land of Marduk. That's the proclamation made in that vision. And, um, And that's what drives the story forward. It's the Bible is a story and in a story story, the plot unfolds. And in this story, the way the plot unfolds is towards an ever larger, more expansive, more beautiful understanding of who God is and what he's doing in the world, which is real different within what Marduk was doing, which is just blessing one little empire that's gone now. Yeah. And when I hear you say that, and basically it's a whose building's bigger, which let's make this, not to get political, but it's a good turn of phrase. It's let's make whatever God great again, or make whatever country great again, or make this ziggurat greater than your ziggurat. And we're going to measure this. And then I hear Paul, you know, going in, in all of his missionary stuff saying, no, 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 you're missing the entire point like we've been doing since these were written down, it God is not in this building. He's more than that. And God, you're you're doing it wrong. That it's not this these four walls, this beautiful architecture has nothing to do with God or the will or the heart of God. Um but I hadn't really put that together till just now. But I do like that. I like that much. Yeah. And what you see in the unfolding, evolving understanding of God in the Bible, and the, the one of the benefits of understanding it as that unfolding understanding is that you see that the roots of our belief that's still in there, that's how powerful stories are, the, the roots of the belief that God's glory is reflected in the size of your empire, the size of your building, the size of your enterprise. And by the way, it always reflects the dominant power structure of the day. So it's either it's an empire in Old Testament times. It's an empire in the third century when Constantine says, oh, it's Jesus thing catching on. Let's conquer in his name. It's an empire for much of that time. I mean, it's still an empire now. So, In a sense, but you also see, say, in some of the Protestant traditions, when in Europe, the dominant power structure of the time was the court system, um, post-enlightenment times. Then the church starts to reflect the language of court flattery instead of the language of imperial flattery. Or um, here, it's, it's churches everywhere across America. We're using the same metrics you use in a corporation to mm-hmm. measure things. Well, that's why we're talking about growth. That's why we think it's it growth matters and all that sort of thing. Well, what you see when you understand the Bible as a story, you see that the roots of lots of those things, that when you read about, say, the Ark of the Covenant, God wanting to live in a temple at all, that's always God accommodating what the people want. Why do they want it? Because they're looking around at the Canaanites. 
They're looking around and they're going, Marduk is blessing Babylon way more than, than Yahweh is blessing us. Let's do what they do. That's the roots of all of these things. And you'll see a God who is spirit, who is love, trying to woo humankind to be his bride and going, oh, I can you, I can play house with you in a temple. And if that's the way to win your heart, I'll do it, I'll do it. But it's not what this is all about. What this is about is the salvation of the world. How much of scripture, um, and this appeals directly to what you're looking to do with the rest of your life and career, it sounds like, how much of scripture is poetry as opposed to, say, history or... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like a factual, a factual, I'm telling you this, A means this, B means this, and there is no other thing. So how much of scripture is poetry? And then to build off of that, poetry is extremely subjective. Like you and I can both read, you know, Frost, or we can both read, uh, one of my favorite poetry book is actually uh, The Rose That Grew in Concrete. It's a, it's a bunch of poetry from Tupac Shakur that is, has nothing to do with his rap. But it's it's I find it beautiful. Um, yeah. So if if I'm reading scripture and if it's subjective when I read it, how am I supposed to then do that? So I guess that's a, that's too many questions. I'm going to break that up again. How much of it is poetry, and then how do I then go forward from that? Yeah, yeah. Two very important questions. I'd say all of it. The tradition itself is poetic. I've heard people make estimations. This is where you, you look down and you go, okay, this is intended to be a history. There are parts of histories that where you go, yeah, this is a book of history. Joshua parting the Jordan, just like the Red Sea parted and, and the waters piling up upstream in a city called Adam. That's, that's poetic in a historical book. So I've heard people say, oh, I've broken it down and 30% of the Bible is po poetry in the sense that it's poems or has po poetic intent. But the meaning is what I would say is always poetry. And that's the tradition, too. Um, I kind of referenced this earlier. Throughout Scripture, you see two groups of people. One are the poets and writers and storytellers and prophets who wrote Scripture and about whom Scripture is written. And there's always these religious dogmatists. They're, they're in there throughout the Bible, too. And it's always the case that that latter group, the religious dogma trainers, they're the bad guys. Like it's the Pharisees slapping Jesus' hand. And that's so in the Old Testament. It's the people going, you got to obey the Bible. Look, and as opposed to the people saying, whoa, God is everywhere. Look at those wheels in the sky. So the big events of the turn scriptures plot, if you look at it as a story, the big upturns and downturns of the story itself are what give the whole story meaning. And those always have poetry within them. When, when Jesus multiplies loaves, that's reaching back to Elisha. Like it's always the, the triumphal entry. That's poetic guerrilla theater, 100% in the tradition of Ezekiel and Isaiah. What so, is poetic guerrilla theater? I don't, I'm not familiar yeah. with that phrase. <laughs> there are some crazy things that the prophets did, you know, like to, to warn of imminent um, siege. Isaiah walked around town naked, just buck naked for three years. Um, heck, that's, of a sun, heck of a sunburn. Right. That's street theater. Uh, to warn of an army attack 
you know, God tells Ezekiel, make a camp and cook your food on human excrement. And Ezekiel says, no way, man, that's gross. Let's, can I at least use cow dung? But he does this like he, he's he's out there. This is how we're going to be. Um, they're giving messages because they're clued in. They're woke to what's going on and what's going to happen and what God wants to happen. And the way they express that is through something that looks like theater. And often that theater has roots in other parts of the Bible. So if when I was a child, I wrote I read the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday story. Mm-hmm. It's just this thing that happened, you know, but then now the way I, if you read it contextually and go, what's going on here? And you look for the way that Jesus and his cousin, John constantly poetically with their actions refer back, say John on the Jordan wearing a camel hair cloak that is 800 years out of fashion. He's clearly saying, I'm Elijah. This is Elisha. And that's a callback. Uh, likewise, the, the triumphal entry, the last time someone had entered Jerusalem uh, to claim his crown in an uncontested manner, it was Alexander the Great, who captured the imagination of the entire Greek-speaking world, which is not an insignificant thing. The, Bible, the, the Gospels are written in Greek, not in Hebrew, not in Aramaic. The, that is the dominant cultural imagination of the time. So he's referring to Alexander the Great. There's you couldn't have thought of triumphal entry in Jerusalem, in Rome, without thinking of Julius Caesar coming into town after he'd slaughtered a million Gauls, his face painted red like the supreme god Jupiter. And so those people that go out to Jesus, uh, where he's coming in on the donkey, where David had left, he's coming back to claim his crown. In Jerusalem, where a real king of the Jews would claim his crown, um, not a fake king of the Jews like Herod, who wasn't, you know, the yeah. real deal. You know, people, the crowds out there, even the cheering crowds are a, pro- a poetic proclamation that this is what a true king looks like. It's some, it's a, it's poetry expressed in words, but also embodied in flesh as God always wants to do because God is incarnational. So did that answer the question? And there was a second part of the question. So yeah, that does answer the question. But the second part of that question is, so poetry is is a lot like music in that I can hear what I want to hear. And so when I hear, I don't know, uh, Penny Lane from you know Paul McCartney, and I hear that and, and it speaks to me in a different way than it speaks to you because that's the intended thing. And, and poetry to me is just, or music to me is just poetry set to a rhythm. Um, I'm probably wrong, but that's what it is to me. And since it's poetry, I get to be right. So if if um if that is true and so i'm reading it and i'm hearing these themes and i'm seeing these themes and the more i read the more i go back and i read again and then that changes the way that i read this in the new testament and then i have to go back to the old testament again so how do i do that well without really screwing it up um yeah. and yeah. and then that would also cause me to then possibly screw up you know uh those that i have influence with that I'm able to say, you know, that, that trust my judgment and say, well, Hey, when you read first Corinthians, this, or when you read, when you read anything. Yeah. And I ask this because I will, I will try to have those conversations now and you can see people's eyeballs just glaze over. Like they ask a question that I think they thought they knew what the answer was going to be. And when you try to give it context, the eyes just glaze over, like they don't really want to know. And so how do I, how do we do that? How do I, or you, or someone else begin to learn that truth 
or begin to learn the truths, the many, the multi-level truths in scripture and then share that? So the first part of your question had to do with poetry being so subjective that, that every individual human can come to it and have a different interpretation of what Robert Frost or the Apostle Paul wrote. That's true not only of poetry, it's true of all of scripture, it's true of dogma, it's true of laws. And I could, and I bet you could too, justify any ideology imaginable with the Bible, whether that ideology is following Jesus for the salvation of the world, or whether that ideology uh, tells you that that means smashing the babies of your enemies against rocks, or killing your enemies, or slaughtering whole peoples, mm -hmm. You can take that from the Bible. So the, the task at hand is to ask yourself, am I understanding things in the tradition in which this is written? Am I understanding this in the tradition of the poets, storytellers, and prophets who wrote this book and about whom it's written? Or um, am I understanding it in some other way? And what cultural influences have led me one way or the other? How is Jesus understanding this? Is he just quoting Old Testament laws and saying, you gotta do this, doggone it? Or does he have another way of being in the world and teaching? I'm hiding under a rock, I'm hiding under my rock I seek then I hide, I'm too weak to speak In the stillness of prayer, there's no secrets God already knows my longing, my yearning, my groaning My burning, my scars and my hurting It's no surprise to him, it's watchful I see it I'm only fooling myself when I conceal it Apart from grace I would never seek your sovereign face Next I just came back from vacation at the beach And um, I gave a lot of thought to our conversation today And a few other conversations that I've had since then And and on the way back, about four hours in, I thought to myself as I was just thinking, the whole family's asleep, and I'm just thinking, and I know, or at least I think I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, like when Paul was out talking, he's not walking around with these scrolls while he's spreading the gospel to the world. So he has it all memorized, and I can't help thinking that if he came back today, was here, walked around, and he sees all of these Christians running around Bible-thumping and just flipping pages and quoting and trying to speak to him. He's like, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. Wait, you read? No, you're doing it wrong. That is not how we talk about Jesus. Like, you don't memorize this? Like, you can't know it at the level that you need to know it if you don't engage with it in such a way that you can just rattle it off, like you could the story of you and your marriage, or the, when your kid was first born, or that, you know, the beautiful poetic moments in our life. And I don't know that I will ever be able to say that I can do that, but it does give me an amount of gratitude to the, to the one of the people that, that has influenced the church so much uh, that, that they could speak about Scripture in such a way that they could just paraphrase it when need be, quote it when need be, and have it all memorized and have it all on demand when they need it to be. And, and even as your listeners hear that, what they're imagining is consulting their Bibles and have it and having it all memorized and get, doing the, the, the kind of scholastic-like work of getting it memorized. And for Paul, I don't think it was quite like that. It, it, a lot of people say, what? When you say Paul didn't have a Bible, like what we call mm -hmm. the Bible, uh, the Gospels, there's no evidence Paul ever looked at a Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
he was writing letters. He didn't have what we call the New Testament. This was a living tradition that you incorporate into your lives and 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 live it out. And Paul's a lot of Paul's ministry is reinterpreting the story and going, whoa, that's the work of the whole New Testament. When you think about it, God's love story scribes had put down their pens 400 years ago. I mean, we can include those those books like Maccabees, but but Jewish people, they too, they were just like, that. Like Jewish people have to look to a Catholic Bible to find Hanukkah. Um, and that's because the tradition in some sense had ended, man. It was like, mm-hmm. forget it. Now these Greeks came in, they're destroying us and we got nothing to say. It's just getting destroyed by one imperial power after another. And here comes Rome. Uh, and so that tradition had gone. And when you, people picked up their pens, it was going, oh, that's what it all meant uh, through the death, resurrection and imbuing of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. They look back at the entire tradition and they reinterpreted the whole thing. And that's what we're called to do, too, in light of our context. You had uh, a longer than normal video. And, and for those listening, uh, pause right now and then just scroll down to the show notes in whatever way you're listening to this. And you'll find a link to Paul's YouTube channel and you'll find, I don't know, 10 or 12 videos there. But one of them is called Metamorphosis. And I believe it came out right around Pentecost. I think that's yeah. when it came out. Yeah. That poem, that spoken word or whatever, I don't know what it's called. It's probably genre bending as well. Um, I like it a lot. And I've shared it with others who will write back and say, you know, I needed this today. This brought me to tears or this is what I needed to hear. But you did that. And then I know you also went off on a trip and on purpose intentionally didn't speak to anyone. Correct? At all. Yeah. yeah. Was that only for a portion of the day or was it all day? Like 24 hours, no speaking at all. We're done. Yeah, 24 hours a day for 10 days. Can you talk a bit about that that poem that is that you'll find on YouTube? And I, I can't encourage people enough. Go and listen to it. It is very good, especially when you think about the poetry of Scripture and the life-changing ability of something that is being transformed, or I would call that salvation or sanctification or uh, theosis, for lack of a, of, a, of a better word. Can you talk a bit about that poem, Metamorphosis, and then its impact on and the impact sense of just silencing yourself for a portion. Let me step way back and give the context for that poem, Metamorphosis, and for other poems that people will see on there. What I've been up to for the past seven years of my life is writing and rewriting and refining and rewriting the book that I believe is going to be the magnum opus of my life. It's called The Butterflies in God's Stomach. And I subtitled it, The Bible's Love Story Recomposed as a Romantic Adventure in Poems and Prose. So it's a creative retelling of Scripture's story from in the beginning to all things new as the love story of God wooing humankind to be his bride. And I found poetry to be a really helpful tool in that book because there are parts of the Bible and especially the parts where God is driving the story that you don't want your reader caught up in a cultural debate. You don't want them saying, you have to believe this Noah thing happened or else you're gonna go to hell. And you don't want them to be like, no, this is actually a part of an ancient Mesopotamian (laughs) flood story tradition. And so I found poetry to be uh, a way to tap the reader on the shoulder and say, hey, we're doing that thing that's a part of this ancient Hebrew and Christian tradition that's where there's resonance with 
everything else. So Metamorphosis is the poem that communicates the event of Pentecost, which is really the climax of the whole biblical story. Um, if you look at it with through the lens, of like say that a screenwriter, you know, screenwriters divide up a, a plot into 15 beats and three acts. It's very, there's, there are formula that screenwriters use to keep you at the edge of your seat when you're watching a film. And, um, and Pentecost actually is the third act climax. That is the big thing. That's when God hands the story off to us to bring it to its final image, which is the wedding of God and the church in an earth that heaven joins and the water of the river of life flows out and God and his bride say, come all who are thirsty and drink. That's how the Bible ends. The Bible doesn't end with people getting like left behind and zapped away to heaven <laughs> somewhere else. That just doesn't happen. It's not even in there. So yeah, that, uh, that's what metamorphosis is. And I would love if people would go listen to that. And I've got a bunch of other offerings and more that'll be coming out there if you subscribe to that channel. And then you had related that to um, my retreat. My retreat, that retreat there was um, something I've done uh, periodically throughout my life. And it's actually, it's, it's a me meditation tradition. Uh, it's, it's a non-religious uh, tradition that taught, it's, it's, uh, I'm always, you hear me stuttering. I, <laughs> it's a Buddhist tradition and I hesitate to say that because that means something that it doesn't really mean to so many people. But it is, it is a practice and it's just the, it's a practice of sitting in silence, observing breath and then observing sensation. And the reality is all thoughts, everything you think, say, and do arises from sensation in your body. It's a way to get deep into your mind. And it's the tool that has helped me bear the fruit of the spirit more than any other practice in my entire life. So I made a crossroads in my life. I wanted to kind of, it's a way I hit the reset button. It's 10 hours, 10, 10 hours a day of sitting meditation, 10 days a week where you don't speak at all. And you, it's a way of getting everything that's between you and God out of the way is the way I experience it. And I happened to go to this retreat center. There's retreat centers all over the world in this tradition. Um, and in the time that I could get away and, and, and get babysitting for my kids and everything, there was only a, a spot at one center in North America and it was in Canada. And I went there and I had just released this Pentecost poem, Metamorphosis. And I go to the one place where there was one spot available and I take a walk in the woods and it sounds in broad daylight, like it's raining. What is going on? And I looked around and that sound that sounded like rain was the sound of caterpillars chewing on leaves about to metamorphosize. <laughs> so it was a fun, like I had this ongoing, having the poetic mind that I do an ongoing metaphor throughout the 10 days, but it was pretty remarkable. I don't find that as coincidental at all. Um, and I also would, this show is, you can say the word Buddhist on this show. I've said before to <laughs> someone, no, I was humbling enough. I was interviewed on a different person's podcast about my story, which I'm still not a hundred percent confident in because I like to be on this side of the mic. I like to ask the questions. I enjoy that better. It's less, um, mm, I don't know what the word is. It's less terrifying. Uh, but, <laughs> I am not prideful enough to think that uh, Christianity is has a stranglehold on all truth. That there's not something that I can learn from, 
you know, Hawaiian traditions or Maori traditions or Buddhist traditions or Islamic traditions. Like there's, there's a lot of truth in a lot of religions. And, and that doesn't mean I don't take the most beautiful parts of that and use it to see Jesus. Um, because again, I don't see Jesus as, as rectifying only humanity. I see it as cosmically rectifying everything created ever. Um, yes. And so I, I'm not offended at all by intentionally <laughs> slowing down, as well as the more that I've dug in, Jesus did that, and Elijah did that, and Paul did that, and, I, and everyone did that, you know, uh, you know, Paul being a, a, a dogmatic person, and then leaving for a time and going back, and I'm sure medit- I have to think meditating on Scripture and refiguring out, okay, well, my world just changed. Uh, I think it's important, especially in today's age of Facebook and constant news cycles and angst and pain and anger and finger pointing that you need to disengage and and Sabbath from everything that is not important um, for it for a time. So I don't, don't I wouldn't be afraid at all to say the word Buddhist. Um, if I had been born in a different country, I may be a Buddhist, and that's fine. And not only are you not prideful to think that you have a monopoly on on truth. God is not impotent enough to fail to express any truth through 99% of people except this one tiny ancient Near Eastern population group that (laughs) handed the baton to me as a Christian, and often the belief is as a Christian of my tradition. You know, like when when, when people get so attached to their dog, but they're often imagining a God who like became incarnate in Jesus, died resurrected for the salvation of the world and then waited as people just got it wrong and got it wrong. Dark ages got it wrong, middle ages wrong. And finally in 18, whatever the Southern Baptist convention is founded and Jesus and God in heaven says, nailed it. Finally, (laughs) (laughs) they finally understood and they wrote it down in the right language. So people understand for, for time and more. So this would be great. Um, I want to take a quote and, and you would actually send it to me, but I do think it's pertinent to the work that you're trying to do in the book that you're, it sounds like you've written seven versions of it. Maybe, maybe more than that, I'm sure. Um, and so when I asked professor N.T. Wright at the end of our episode, um, and for those listening, that would have been, uh, the week before July 4th, um, what we could do better as Christians, what we could learn from Paul uh, to make the world or, or Christianity move forward in a progressive way. He said that maybe there's a new vocation for people today to think theologically, to write poems, which will go to the very heart of the matter, and which will appeal to people not just intellectually, but emotionally and culturally enable them to praise and worship in rich, scripture-fueled ways. And so with that being said, that sounds like the work that you're trying to do. And so when is your book coming? Because I feel like that would be helpful, um, and and people like you. Who else could we? Who else would you point us to that are doing work this way in a more contemplative, intentional, uh, deeper than surface level of vocabulary way? But when when is butterflies coming out? That's a good question, and I would love to appeal to your audience to join me on the journey as I try to get it there. As I pitch it out to agents, what happens is they say, I'm such a fan. One set, one agent that I pitched it to said, I closed the office and brought it home and read it to my wife. They love it. They say acquisitions editors love it and marketing teams shoot it down. And it's, it's a similar reason to why The Shack, which went on to sell 20 million copies, 
could not, it wasn't picked up by any Christian publisher. He had to self-publish that. Mm. And the reason is the publishing Christian, Christian publishing industry, they're looking for what works. They're hurting in this world of online culture and self-publishing. And they know that people with giant platforms are the ones who are going to keep their marketing teams from having to make the expenditure to do the work. So basically what they're saying is, Paul, you need to build a platform. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 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 a lot of fun just getting the work out there. And that's what I'm doing. If you want to join me on the journey, I'd love to just give a gift to your audience and you can go to butterfliesbook.com and just download the free stuff there. It's in audio and, and in PDF so that you can read it or listen to it as you prefer. That'll put you on this, on the mailing list where I can keep you informed on the adventure. And I'm not hitting you up for anything. It's just, I'll give you some free gifts over the next year and you can join the ride as we try to get it there. Because I think N.T. Wright is right. And the reason N.T. Wright thinks that, it, it, that we need to bring those poetic and storytelling voices into this is because it's a poetic and storytelling tradition that we come from and desperately need to recover because the consequences now of misinterpreting scripture as a big pile of dogma scrap that we fight over between denominations. The consequences of missing the point like that are higher than they were in Jesus' time or any time in the history of the world. And here's why. The Bible tells the story of the origins, history, and destiny of all human civilization. It was composed over the most important 1,500 years in the formation of human civilization. And it points to the desired final scene that God wants, which is the unification of God with his bride, humankind, on an earth that heaven joins. But it's up to us to get us to the final scene, mm -hmm. because it's God is a lover who's saying, I need this love to be reciprocated. You can, I gave you this world because I loved you. You can love me back by taking care of it, or you can just reject my love by not. But now we're at a time in human history where technological progress is growing at an unprecedented rate, and it doesn't grow linearly, it grows exponentially. History itself is accelerating, and the choice is ours whether we accelerate that towards death and destruction or towards the Bible's final scene. And the only thing we as humankind really add or subtract to the story is love. That's our contribution, whatever you do, is, is as a member of the body of Christ, which is bigger than people are imagining. Um, the task is really the salvation of the world. Um, which doesn't mean individual souls going to heaven. We could destroy this world through environmental degradation, through nuclear war, through artificial intelligence gone out of control. Unless we find ourselves in a love story and get engaged, we're not going to get to the right final scene. Paul, where can people find you? I know you're on Facebook. I know you're on YouTube. Where else are you? The main thing I would love for people to do at this stage right now is go to butterfliesbook.com and download that free stuff. Sure. And then that'll get you subscribed to my email list. And I'll let you know as stuff comes out. I am on Facebook, Paul Thomas Author. 
And um, the main reason I just love for you to join me on the journey is so that you can see as this fall, as summer ends, kids are back in school, I get back to rhythms. You can join along for the ride as you see somebody who I'm fundamentally kind of a, and you'll see this from my writing. Uh, that's that's my sweet spot. And this, uh, the look at me stuff isn't my sweet spot, mm -hmm. but I'll let you know as it comes out. It's a business that I'm getting into out of necessity because I believe so strongly in this message. Well, I enjoy the stuff that I've read and, and I appreciate your time today, Paul, very much. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Was I chasing I really do hope that at the end of this, you will go to butterfliesbook.com and download the sample chapters. They're beautiful. It's concepts and thoughts about scripture in a way that usually we don't engage with them. And it's free. Like you, you literally have no reason not to. So please do that. I am overwhelmingly grateful to each and every one of you that takes the time to rate and review the show on iTunes, follow and engage the shows on Twitter and Facebook, and especially, especially a huge, tremendous thank you to each and every one of our Patreon supporters. If you have not yet done that, please consider doing that today. Today's episode featured the music of King's Kaleidoscope. You can find all of their information and links to their albums at kingskaleidoscope.com. Talk to you next week.